0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Shortly before the outbreak of the Second World War, British stockbroker Nicholas Winton was set to go on a skiing holiday. When his friend and travelling companion told him about a humanitarian crisis unfolding in Czechoslovakia. The pair promptly cancelled their trip and swapped ski chalets for the refugee camps of Central Europe. In the lead-up to the war, Nicholas Winton would go on to work tirelessly to rescue hundreds of Jewish children from Nazi-occupied territory by transporting them to new lives in Britain. His life and achievements are the subject of a new film starring Anthony Hopkins called One Life. And ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day tomorrow, author Edward Smith joins Spencer Mizen to discuss his story.
4: Hi, Edward. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Now, so we're recording this podcast as One Life, the film recounting Nicholas Winton's Extraordinary Exploits is showing in cinemas across the UK So my first question is, did you enjoy the film? And do do you think it does a good job of capturing the essence of Nicholas Winton?
5: Yeah, hi, Spencer. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was a very, very good depiction of Winton. I think that both the actors playing Nicholas Winton did a brilliant job, especially Anthony Hopkins as an older Winton, which was the Winton I knew. Clearly, with, with any of these films or dramas you can't include every character or every individual involved and as a bit of a geek on the topic there were individuals I would have wanted to see on there but completely understand why they weren't. I think what the film really captured was firstly Winton's personality from what I knew of him and from everything I've read he had a wonderful sense of humour he was very humble as he's as quite sort of famous for but very humble Quiet, but good fun, and I think that was really brought across, especially by Hopkins. They also included some really key characters. There were two individuals, Doreen Warriner and Trevor chadwick and It was really the three of them who masterminded the evacuations in in nineteen thirty nine and I was very pleased to see that they were both given big roles in in the film. And I think generally, they were portrayed very accurately.
4: And when did you first personally get interested in, in the story of Nicholas Winson?
5: Where, where does this interest spring from? So I met him when I was, I think I was about 17. And he was well over 100 by that point. At that time, his story was almost completely unknown. And I think what really kind of inspired me at the time was, I don't think he would ever have wanted to be called a hero, but he was certainly uh, a leader. And I think it really kind of showed me as a, as a younger person that leaders can come in all different shapes and sizes. They don't necessarily need to be a huge extrovert or particularly loud or particularly bullish. So I think I was really interested by the way that such an unassuming individual could have done something quite so spectacular.
4: Let's go back to the beginning. So you, you- Written a feature on Winton for the January issue of BBC History magazine. Now, in the article, you point out that Winton was born to German-Jewish parents in North London and his his family experienced a, a degree of ostracism. Does his early life give us any inkling as to how he developed kind of the determination and the audacity and this moral compass to mastermind the escape of hundreds of Jewish children from Czechoslovakia just before the Second World War?
5: I think it's a brilliant question and and I think it absolutely did. I think early on it certainly inspired his political beliefs. He was very left-wing with his political beliefs and I think a lot of that came from some of the difficulties that his family had growing up. As you say in North London, he was born in 1909 it, with the build-up to the First World War, his parents actually changed their name to Winton to try and remove some of the, uh, the 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 kind of German links, as it were. What I find very interesting as well is there's some controversy at the moment about the film describing Winton as saving Central European children rather than Jewish children. And, and actually, pretty much everything that Winton has written is, is that he didn't do this... With any religion in mind, he simply wanted to get children out of Czechoslovakia who were in danger. and I do think that his growing up in London and not necessarily being accepted in the way that a child would want to be really kind of inspired him to want to to help others, no matter their religion, no matter you know their political beliefs and so forth. So he was very much focused on the children and the human side of it rather than any affiliations that these individuals might have had.
4: What kind of upbringing was it? I understand it was kind of a middle class background that you came from. Is that is that correct?
5: They grew up in a large house in Hampstead. It had 20 rooms, four members of staff. He had a nanny, a cook and two maids. He went to a very prestigious boarding school in 1923 and he he never did particularly well there academically but he really got involved in some slightly unusual activities and I think this shows the sort of personality of the man rather than playing rugby and cricket which he did a little bit he got into fencing he also started horse riding and I think the one I found the most interesting was pigeon fancying. So the, the, the keeping of, of racing pigeons, which bizarrely he could all do at, at school. And he left as a 17-year-old without a huge number of qualifications or particularly good academic results. But he left as a much more confident man than he had been when he was sort of growing up in Hampstead, where he was slightly ostracised given his, uh, his German heritage.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored, Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Did he train to be a,
4: a banker? Is that correct?
5: He did. He, he originally wanted to be a solicitor and he asked his father about it. And his father, I think it's maybe a bit of a sign of the times, a different era, said to him rather dismissively that he he frankly wasn't clever enough to be a solicitor, so he should try something else. So he went into banking again. His father had a a business importing glass from Czechoslovakia somewhat coincidentally, given what winter would go on to do. The business wasn't going particularly well, so his father uh, encouraged him to go into banking mainly because it would help bring in some some more income for the family. And he he didn't particularly enjoy it. The only real benefit for him came in 1929, where he had the opportunity to move to Germany for a while and work out there, so he went to Hamburg. And he really saw the dire consequences of the, the First World War, the economic depression that was happening there, as well as, obviously, the rise of populism and the Nazi Party. So he spent most of his career... Uh, as a banker and as a stockbroker. But as I said, it wasn't really something that he ever particularly enjoyed.
4: So he conceived his plan to help children escape Czechoslovakia during a a visit to Prague at the very end of 1938, going into 1939. How did that visit come about? What was he doing there in the first place?
5: Well, he wasn't meant to be there at all. He was due to go skiing with a friend of his called Martin Blake. It was the day before he was due to go skiing that he got a call from Blake who had seen what was going on in Czechoslovakia in the news and had decided to go out there. And Blake said, come, come to Prague. There's something really interesting for you here and I think we can help. So he immediately changed his his plane ticket and on the 31st of December, New Year's Eve 1938, he uh, he flew out to Prague. And he was only there for three weeks. And I think this is something that is often forgotten, that he wasn't actually there for very long at, at all. And uh, along with Blake, they went to visit a lady called Doreen Warrener, who was really the founding force behind an organisation called the BCRC, the British Committee for Refugees in Czechoslovakia. And her organisation was really focused on political opponents to the Third Reich who had fled mainly from the Sudetenland following the Munich Agreement to Prague. She was focused on trying to get them out because they were all wanted and they were all men. So she was purely focused at that point on evacuating men. And Winton and Blake started working for her and supporting her. And it was within, it seems to be within the first day between Winton and Warrener they agreed that Winton would take on what was later termed the children's section of the BCRC. So Warrener certainly understood the need to Help children. She had about 15 children in her care who had either been lost or whose parents had, had left. So she was very conscious about it, but either didn't have the bandwidth or the ability to organise anything. And she asked Winton to take it on. He immediately wrote to his boss in, in England and asked for an extension to his holiday, but that extension would only take him to, to the three weeks. Martin Blake left a few days after they arrived and Winton spent his time. He visited a lot of the refugee camps, which is very emotionally depicted in One Life, and I think very kind of accurately so, saw what was happening and wrote to his mother, uh, Barbara Winton, who's played by Helen Bonacarta, and asked her to find out all of this information from the Home Office of how to evacuate children and it quickly became apparent that the only way to do this would be for the children to come unaccompanied and fortunately kinder transport by that time was actually relatively well underway from other countries around Europe but not from Czechoslovakia so there there was a, a, a almost a blueprint in place of how to do this and his mother managed to navigate through all of the different bureaucratic barriers that were in place to be able to start arranging these transports.
4: So I was going to ask you, how Herculean a task was this? I mean, it's, it sounds like an enormous undertaking.
5: I, I think it was an unbelievably large sort of bureaucratic and administrative task. And, and I think potentially that's why the story has maybe gone a little bit under the radar up till recently, because You haven't got someone running around being chased by the Gestapo. I mean, you did have those people in Prague at the time, but it wasn't Winton. It was very much a group of individuals. There were four of them sitting in Winton's flat, Winton, his mother, Blake, Martin Blake and one other, working through paperwork to try and get visas for for children. But that was only one side of it. The other side of it was finding homes for these children to go to and finding families to adopt the children. And Winton took almost quite a cold approach to this. He realised that the way to get families to take children into their homes in England was to to send a page with six pictures of children, six or eight pictures of children on them. And he would write a little bit of information about the children. Sometimes he would send some drawings that they had done or some, you know, some, some, some arts and crafts that they had done. And these families would sort of cross the ones that they wanted, so it was almost like a sort of shopping catalogue, which seems incredibly uh, as I said cold to do it that way. But winter knew that the way to save the children was to kind of speak to the emotions of these families, and there are some very heartbreaking records now where you you can see these documents that have been returned and certain children are being crossed off, they've been chosen, but other ones hadn't because parents would say, well, I want a, a girl and I, I want her to be under the age of 10, for example, which we can judge now to say, how could someone ask that? But I suppose if you're being fair, you would say that if they've got a family themselves and, you know, they want the best for the child and the best for their family, it's it's understandable. But I don't think anyone else really... Ever did it in that in that way, and I think there were probably some raised eyebrows about that method of selecting families. But there's there's no question that if Winton hadn't have done that, he would never have been able to get the number of children out that he he did, and he was only stopped from doing it because of war breaking out. So he potentially could have got a huge huge number more children very sadly out again through this uh, through this method.
4: How did the British authorities and the British public more generally react to his attempts to bring the children into into the country? I mean, did their plight elicit a lot of sympathy among the people of Britain? Was there much awareness of it among the people of Britain?
5: There was certainly a huge amount of awareness of the plight of children around Europe, but certainly not the plight of children from Czechoslovakia. And I find that very strange. Generally, there was a very positive response and a lot of sympathy from the British public. And I think now, if we if we look at Kinder transport and look at what Winton does, you know, a, as a country, we see this as being a usually proud part of our history. And I think that was certainly felt at the time, where Winton and Warren are as as well. I think all of them, but. The, Winter and Warriner from a a vocal perspective were most vocal about it, were frustrated is, is with what Winton calls the difference between active goodness and passive goodness. And what he meant by that was there were lots of people offering their sympathies. A lot of people saying how concerned they were about the plight of the children, but not actually willing to, or they didn't think they were able or willing to do anything to help. So I think the the main resistance came from actually getting people to move away from saying, this is awful, to this is awful, let's do something about it. I do think though it was almost sort of probably quite popular to think that the government was usually resistant and uh, the Home Office were very, you know, it's very difficult to get visas from them. From what I've seen and from what Winton has, has said, generally they were all very supportive.
4: How did he navigate a very different challenge, and that is negotiating with German authorities as you know war approached going into 1939? How much of a challenge was that?
5: It was a huge challenge. He only really had one transport of children. I actually believe it might have been two, but um, that's just uh, down to some records I've, I've found. But he only officially got one transport of children out before. Germans arrived, uh, the Nazis arrived in Czechoslovakia uh, and that was only 20 children. So he had 649 other children. Uh, he got out while the country was occupied and actually took them on trains through Germany, which is quite amazing. There was a man there who I mentioned earlier called Trevor Chadwick, and he arrived in Prague about two weeks after Winton did and was a school teacher. And he actually started to build quite a good relationship with the Gestapo and the Gestapo leader after they arrived and talked a lot about how he would, you know, be banging his fist on this. Chap's desk and insisting on on them giving visas and so forth, and there was a British official as well called Robert Stopford who was in the country as well, who again worked very closely with the German authorities. So it was it was certainly a, a, a challenge. The, the one thing we need to remember is at that point the policy of the Third Reich was to remove as many Jewish individuals from their territory as possible. So. In a way, they they weren't hugely resistant to train loads of children leaving. Chadwick wrote in one of his accounts that one of the biggest bits of opposition he got from the Gestapo was them asking him why England wanted so many Jews. So they were willing to allow these transports to happen. But there was, again, a huge amount of bureaucracy. And not only did Winton and Chadwick and so forth need Visas for individuals to travel, they needed travel permits from the uh, German authorities for them to to leave Prague as well, which again was just another bureaucratic nightmare for them.
4: Sure. Now, you said earlier that the transports would have continued but for the actual start of the war. That brings me to a sort of particularly tragic and heartrending aspect of this town, which 200, I think it was 250 children were on a train ready to leave Czechoslovakia only for the Nazis to close the border on the outbreak of war. And, you know, you you said in your article, you think that most of those subsequently been murdered. And how did that episode haunt Winton in the years
5: sort of following 1939? And how did that affect him emotionally? I, I think it affected him hugely. And I think it affected all of those who were involved, who had a huge feeling of guilt that they weren't able to save more more children. And I think if you put yourself back into, into their shoes, there was almost a transport leaving just a bit more than once a month up to that point. And I think the thoughts going through their minds were, well, could we have done two a month? Could we have got bigger trains to go? What more could we have done as we, as we all think in day-to-day life, but with very different consequences? And I think that... Part of the many reasons this story has gone under the radar for so long was that sense of guilt and sadness from Winton and those involved. That they almost saw a lot of what they did as as almost a failure because they weren't able to help more. Uh, Records show that that Winton, when he left Prague in January 1939, had about 5,000 children's names that he he left with. As you say, there was this uh, train, it's 251 children sitting on the train. It was due to leave on the 1st of September, but uh, never departed. What we don't know is how many more would have followed after that. So you know going back to your question, I think that train certainly haunted Winton for the rest of his life and, and those involved. But also the the ones we don't know about that may have followed had war broken out six months later, we we just don't we just don't know, and I think that would have always very sadly sat with him. So, what did his Second World War look like? What what did he do in the subsequent years? He was originally a conscientious objector. He started off as a ARP warden and was working to build out air raid shelters. And this was during the phoney war, so there, there wasn't a huge amount going on at the time. He then became a Red Cross ambulance driver and he was very heavily involved during the bombings over Britain and then he also went out to Dunkirk as an ambulance driver. He then did join the RAF. I think his views changed slightly. He, he always said that he was happy to help with the war effort but he didn't want to actually do any of the killing as it were. So he joined the RAF he wasn't able to fly because of his eyesight but he became a pilot trainer and towards the end of the war spent uh, a lot of time traveling around europe demoing this uh, new flight simulator so he went back to prague went back to hamburg and so forth and saw you know these cities in complete ruins compared to how he had seen them before the war after the war ended he moved into a a, a very sort of haunting job dealing with a lot of the items and assets stolen during the Holocaust. And there are some quite infamous photos now of crates full of wedding rings and children's toys and shoes and false teeth and so forth he was responsible for collecting that valuing it and you know so in the case of the 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 rings or or the gold teeth having that melted down and then the money being provided back to Jewish communities so it was a very harrowing task for him just after after the war a couple of weeks back I
4: watched his famous appearance on That's Life in 1988. Well, it was, it was, I mean, it's an amazing bit of television when Esther Ranson introduced a completely unsuspecting Nicholas Winton to some of the the children he'd saved five decades earlier. And I've got to say, it kind of brought a tear to my eye watching it. How did that moment all those years later change Nicholas Winton's life I mean how did he react to being kind of catapulted into the public eye in the late 80s?
5: I don't know how much he really enjoyed it to be honest he was very noticeably surprised and, and actually that clip of That's Life it, it actually happened over two episodes so he, he went to the first episode and there was a individual, you know, an individual sitting to his right and to his left and then when he came, uh, I think it was the next week or a few weeks later, the whole audience was f- filled with his, uh, as they're termed, his children. And um, I, I think there were a few things. He always says that his family rapidly grew, then, because these now elderly individuals almost became part of his family. And, and what people often forget is that most of them had no idea who had actually saved. Them or how they had got to to Britain. So not only was it a hugely sort of revealing moment for Winton to see all of these children now as as adults, but also they learnt who had saved them and how it happened. So it was it was a lovely sort of bringing together moment then. He was then catapulted into this world where he was, you know, people were queuing up to give him honours and, and and so forth. I do think he, he didn't necessarily seem to enjoy the spotlight at all, but I do think he liked the ability to get his message out there and that that message being, no matter your religion or your political beliefs, we are all human beings and we should be trying to alleviate suffering from others. So I think he enjoyed getting that that message out there. I do get the sense as well, though, that it spiralled so rapidly for him that he spent a lot of time almost trying to remove some of the myths that, you know, he had worked alone and that he had been in Czechoslovakia the whole time and that he was, you know, fighting off Gestapo's with guns the whole time and all of those sort of myths that were making the rounds so so i do i do get the sense as well that he felt almost compelled and slightly frustrated that his story was being told but not in the way that it actually happened or how he wanted it to be told so he remains something of a a reluctant hero then you'd say absolutely and if you look at the film I have little doubt that the film would have been made if he was if he was still alive at the time before he died. Uh, I think he was dead against the idea of having a uh, having a film made a, a, about him, and, and I and I don't think he liked the term hero. I I think he would uh, hate the fact that I've called my biography about him the British Oscar Schindler. I don't think he would have liked that necessarily, but I do think he saw the good that can come from his story being put out there. So. He certainly was a reluctant hero, but uh, didn't go to the extent of, you know, turning down honours or not unveiling statues and so forth. I think he did see it as his duty almost to to get his story out there. Did he keep in
4: touch with any of the the children, obviously, then adults that that he'd saved?
5: Yes, he, he kept in touch with lots of them and became very good friends with uh, with lots of them and because he lived uh, he lived to the age of 106 he died in 2015 a lot of his children in inverted commas, you know he he was you know sadly going to the funerals of them because you know he he kind of outlived so many of them so he certainly built a huge kind of extended family with these children and and their children and and family members and obviously his Children of Urticomas wanted to thank him and make and and support him as much as as, as possible. And they they presented him with a with a ring, with a Jewish religious saying inside, save one life, save the world.
4: And finally, Edward, I mean, why do you think it's important that we continue to celebrate his achievements and his exploits today?
5: I think it's hugely timely that this story is, is coming out now. As I said earlier, I, I think that this part of our history as a country is is something we're proudest of. But we maybe have slightly mixed views about the idea of immigration, refugees and and so forth. And I think that this story is, is so relevant today and will always be so relevant because it just goes back to the human elements to all, all of this. You know, Winton was not interested in religion. He wasn't interested in saving people with certain political beliefs. He was simply interested in saving other human beings and other children. And that kindness and proactivity to go out of your way and, and help others, I think is such an important message. I really hope the story continues to inspire people to do things like he did. Not that anyone does this to be remembered, But, you know, when you and I are long gone, Spencer, you don't know, you know, there could be someone out there now who does something and there will be a film of their life that comes out and it inspires another generation.
0: That was Edward Abel-Smith, who's the author of the British Oscar Schindler, The Life and Work of Nicholas Winton. For more resources and articles on the history of the Holocaust more widely, Including a four part lecture series by the historian Lawrence Rees, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.